Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, activity. Well, thanks very much for joining us again. And uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, fact from myth. This has been quite a week, uh, hasn't it? Uh, we haven't seen something like this uh, for decades. Uh, and for me, it brings back some uh, not-so-pleasant memories, although I suppose if it weren't for the Russians, then I wouldn't be in Canada now. But... Uh, uh, the invasion of Ukraine takes me back to 1956 and, and, uh, and Hungary. I was very young, of course, at the time. And in the uh, city where um, I, I was, uh, Schopron, which is right on the border of, uh, of Austria, uh, there essentially was no, no fighting. But I certainly remember the Russian tanks rolling in and there was just one image that is still quite vivid in, in my mind. And that was the only confrontation I saw when a couple of young boys, I think they were probably, you know, young teenagers, climbed up on a tank and uh, used the jam to muck up the windows of the tank so that the driver couldn't see where it was going. And uh, when they had to open the, the top... Uh, in order to see, then they threw a Molotov cocktail into the into the tank, and uh, you could see the fire in inside, uh, and the tank was eventually uh, gutted. But that's the only thing that I, I saw. Uh, there were a few dozen tanks that uh, rolled in and took up uh, positions. I, I we happened to live on the on the main street, and so that's where they were uh, posted. But uh, uh, they uh, uh, they didn't really do anything, certainly nothing, nothing that I saw. And uh, uh, it was uh, that night that uh, we, with a guide, uh, managed to sneak across uh, into Austria, uh, basically crawling under the wires and in the mud, uh, waiting for the spotlight to uh, to pass. So obviously, I have a lot of sympathy for what is going on in Ukraine at this time, and um, this is really just a mad action for which there was absolutely no no reason. And uh, Russia, uh, particularly Putin, has to be made to pay the penalty uh, for this. And uh, it's um, certainly nice to see that all of the Western countries are, are linking up and taking uh, measures to try to stifle the Russian economy, which of course is, uh, is going to hurt them. Anyway, it's, it's uh, you know, we are kind of coming out of COVID and then we have to confront uh, this, uh, this tragic event. Seems like the world is, is just uh, going crazy. All right. Well, back to more mundane matters. We do have a question that uh, uh, hangs over from last week. In 1980, a PhD student monitored the seats in a dental waiting room for several days and noted that one specific seat directly opposite the reception desk was generally avoided by women. 
and then over several weeks, he sprayed the seat with a tiny amount of a substance and observed that there was a marked increase in popularity by women and avoidance by men. What is the substance that he sprayed on the seat? If you know the answer to that, 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. All right, but of course, I do have new questions for you as well. And here's one that uh, may prove to be a little challenging. I want you to use the words limestone, ramp, and the number 2,300,000 in a sentence. And of course, it has to be a meaningful sentence. So you're going to use the word limestone, the word ramp, and the number 2,300,000 in one sentence. All right, so that's another puzzler for you. And I'm going to give you one more. In 1564, Italian physician Gabriele Fallopio described the trial he had carried out thus. I tried the experiment on 1,100 men, and I call immortal God to witness that not one of them was infected. What was that experiment? So three questions for you to uh, think about and give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text your questions or comments to 514-800. All right, let's get going with some uh, hopefully interesting uh, thoughts and uh, uh, references to the scientific literature here. Uh, False beliefs. And uh, as you know, I'm big on trying to eliminate those. And uh, there are a lot of mistaken beliefs out there. Uh, Many of them are are mostly benign. I mean, I really don't care if some people believe that the earth is flat or that the moon landing was faked or that, uh, you know, flying saucers are buzzing through our our skies or or that uh, uh, aliens with lasers are are, uh, drawing crop circles, you know, in our uh, wheat fields. Those are strange beliefs, but uh, they're not going to affect uh, the vast majority of the population. I'm not too bothered by people who believe that dinosaurs and humans roamed the earth at the same time, uh, or by those who think that they can bend spoons by the power of the mind. But when it comes to to misinformation about COVID-19 and about vaccination, that, that is a different ballpark. And recently, a survey of over 18,000 Americans in all 50 states, so it's pretty widespread and pretty representative. And uh, the results were surprising and uh, not very comforting. It turns out that about 5% of the people surveyed uh, believe that vaccines contain microchips. 7% believe that vaccines uh, are made from aborted fetuses, 8% believe that vaccines can alter human DNA, and 10% are concerned that vaccines can cause infertility. All of these statements are scientifically wrong. There's been a lot of investigation of all of these. Well, I don't think there's been investigation of the microchips. I mean, that's just pure nonsense. But these are all fallacious statements. And yet we have significant numbers of people believe in them. Now, of course, you may think 5%, that's a very small number. 
But 5% of a large number, which is the total population of the U.S., still gives you a pretty large number. Uh, interestingly, a third of the people who believed some of the false claims knew that these claims are rejected by experts, but nevertheless, they believe them. They just apparently don't trust this, the, the science, which is, of course, disturbing. And it's also noteworthy that 37% of those who believe multiple false, uh, false claims think that they themselves are very knowledgeable about vaccines. So people who have these false beliefs often think that they are smarter than what they really are. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, we have an excellent uh, answer to the uh, question that I posed about using the words ramp and limestone and 2,300,000 in a sentence. And the winner is the Egyptians used ramps to move the 2,300,000 stones made of limestone to make the Great Pyramid at Giza. That is right. Very, very good. I I suppose that came up googling the number 2,300,000. But yeah, that's the estimate of the number of limestone blocks that were pulled up a ramp by gangs of men, not slaves. The pyramids were not built by slaves. Uh, And each block is about seven feet high, and some of them are 18 feet across, weighing an average of two tons. Think about that. These were moved on sleds, pulled up ramps by, by large numbers of men. Unbelievable. And uh, the pyramid uh, uh, is attributed to King Cheops, built around 2900 BC. And it's believed that 100,000 men worked for 20 years to build it. And uh, they had to bring the stone uh, from quarries on the Nile River by boat. And again, it's estimated that it took about 500,000, that is half a million trips. Building that pyramid was really some achievement. And, uh, you know, here we are uh, some 5,000 years later, and it is still there. How many of the buildings we have now are going to be around 5,000 years uh, from now? And the pyramids still hold some secrets. You know, there are tunnels in there uh, that uh, uh, may not even have been found yet. Oh, it's, uh, it's just an amazing uh, example of, of ingenuity and, and uh, uh, cleverness in, in, in construction and obviously of manpower. Okay, we still have the other question about uh, Gabriele Fallopio, Italian physician, who in 1564 uh, carried out a trial, and he described it as the following. I tried the experiment on 1,100 men, and I call immortal God to witness that not one of them was infected. What was the experiment that he tried? You know where you can find the largest coin in the world? In Sudbury. And it's a 1951 Canadian nickel. But it's way too big to put in your pocket because uh, it's about 30 feet high and 2 feet wide. And it's a popular tourist attraction in in Sudbury, and it commemorates the 200th anniversary 
of the isolation of metallic nickel. And that was by Swedish mineralogist and chemist Baron Axel Frederick Kronstedt. But this uh, giant nickel also indirectly pays homage to the ingenuity of another chemist. And uh, that would be Ludwig Mond, who developed the first commercial process to produce pure nickel. And uh, Sudbury, as you probably know, is a, a region where a lot of nickel is produced because of the ore that is, is found there. And um, uh, Mond, uh, originally born in Germany, but eventually took on British citizenship, he also played a very large part in, uh, in the nickel industry in, uh, in Ontario. So anyway, touch of history here. Back in the 17th century, German miners searching for copper discovered a reddish ore that looked to be a source of that metal. But no matter how they tried, they couldn't extract any copper from it. And they concluded that a prank had been played on them by Nickel, a mischievous demon in German mythology. They named the ore that would not yield copper Kupfernickel, meaning copper demon. It didn't yield copper for the simple reason that it didn't contain any. And that was eventually shown by Kronstedt, who in 1751 heated the Kupfernickel with charcoal and produced a metal not seen before. It clearly was not copper. He dropped the name Kupfer and named the metal Nickel. He had discovered a new element, a very shiny element and one that resists corrosion. And uh, it was ideal for making coins. And also it's used to make stainless steel together with chromium. It was used to make armor on ships because adding nickel to iron strengthened the, the metal. But producing pure nickel from its ore was a challenge. And this challenge was eventually met by Ludwig Mond, who certainly did not set out to purify nickel. Like many discoveries, this one came about in a roundabout fashion. Mond was born in 1839 to a prominent Jewish family in Germany. His father was able to send him to the best schools, uh, including uh, University of Heidelberg, where he studied under Robert Bunsen of Berner fame. But he never completed his degree because he was much more interested in practical applications of chemistry than, uh, than the theory. And he went to work for a company that was making uh, sodium carbonate. And sodium carbonate was very, very important chemical because you use it to make paper, you use it to, to make glass. And it was made by a process invented in France by Nicolas Leblanc, known as the Leblanc process. But the problem with this process was that it produced a, a waste material, calcium sulfide, and... Um, uh, eventually, uh, Mond found a way to convert that into sulfur, which was highly marketable. And this brought him to the attention of a company in England, the John Hutchison Company. And he went to work for that company. And uh, he solved the problem of what to do with that waste material. He converted it into, into to sulfur. Uh, and then he stuck out on his own together with a partner, John Brunner, uh, again, making uh, sodium carbonate. But he also knew that there was a better process available. And that was the Solvay process that had been introduced by Belgian chemist Ernest Solvay. So he went to, to Belgium to discuss licensing with him and he managed to, to get this. 
And this was the so-called uh, soda ammonium process, much more efficient. But the problem here too was what to do with the, the waste materials. And this is where luck and ingenuity entered because he found a way to take care of the, race, the waste material ammonium chloride by converting into chlorine gas. However, uh, when the, the, process, uh, re the process required passing gases through to tubes and, and equipped with valves, And it turned out that sometimes these valves would develop a black deposit mysteriously. And uh, most people would have said, gee, what is that? How do I just clean this and go on with the process? But he investigated this black deposit and found that when he heated it, it turned into metallic nickel. Because what had happened was that the gas that was used to flush out the equipment was contaminated with carbon monoxide. And carbon monoxide reacted with the nickel valve to produce a compound called nickel carbonyl. And when that was heated, it broke down to carbon monoxide and nickel. And uh, he immediately exploited the serendipitous discovery, founded the Mond Nickel Company, purchased nickel ore mines around Sudbury, uh, shipped the smelted ore back to a refinery in Wales, where it was treated with carbon monoxide to yield nickel carbonyl. That was then heated and it produced pure nickel. And that was a tremendously important uh, breakthrough because nickel was increasing in popularity because of the advent of stainless steel and also, of course, of, of coinage. So uh, he was uh, a very interesting man, Ludwig Mond. He was uh, a great supporter of workers. He introduced uh, the eight-hour workday, a rarity in those days. He offered his employees paid vacations and fringe benefits like recreation clubs and sports fields. And uh, when uh, he uh, made a lot of money, which he did, he became an art collector and eventually uh, had a massive connection of Italian Renaissance paintings that he donated to the National Gallery in London, the largest single gift the museum ever received. So uh, we think back to Ludwig Mold every time that we hold a nickel in our hand and his contributions to science, the arts, and to social reform. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check CTV News, and we will be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Well, I still need answers about uh, Gabriele Fallopio, the Italian doctor who tried an experiment on 1,100 men and uh, found that none of them was infected. What was that experiment? And I'm also looking for uh, the uh, substance that was put on chairs in order to attract women to the chair and repel uh, the men. So 514-790-0800 or text us at 514-800. We have people on the line. Uh, question about decaf coffee, Benny? Hello, Dr. Joe. I've got a question about a cup of Joe. Um, do you know anything about the decaffeinating process? Like, I find it hard to wonder how can you decaffeinate coffee, and is the Swiss water method 
superior to um, decaffeinating it with methylene chloride. Okay, the methylene chloride is no longer used. Uh, well, the idea. I have, excuse me, I, I just yeah. bought at um, uh, a, a reputable, expensive cafe their espresso decaf, and on it, it is written uh, decaffeinated with methylene chloride. It comes from Seattle. Do you want me to name Really? <laughs> That's yes. surprising because in Canada, methylene chloride is, is not used. Anyway, there are several solvents that, that can be used. The idea, of course, is to dissolve the caffeine without dissolving the flavor components of the coffee. And uh, methylene chloride and ethyl acetate are the classic ones. Ethyl acetate is the one that is now uh, most commonly used. So the idea is to soak the beans in these solvents and then filter off the beans, and the caffeine will be left behind in, in the solvent, right? And then the beans are roasted, and the solvent is evaporated. So actually, no solvent remains behind in the decaffeinated coffee. Uh, the trouble with methylene chloride is that, of course, it is a highly toxic solvent. So you don't want it be, to be present, but it isn't present because it is broken down by heat and it's also very volatile. So it would not be there in the final uh, uh, version. But um, as far as I know, I'm surprised that that you found one with methylene chloride because well, I uh, wasn't looking. Uh, for, it's Starbucks, you know. They make great yeah. coffee. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can say. Well, anyway, I mean, I I. I really wouldn't worry about it because I said that there there is no possibility of having a residue there after the roasting uh, process. But you okay. were asking about the Swiss water process. The Swiss water process is a very effective way to remove caffeine. And what they do there is actually first brew the coffee and then pass the coffee through activated carbon. And the activated carbon is very specific in that it absorbs uh, the caffeine and not the flavor components. So after passing through the activated carbon, you have coffee that is uh, uh, decaffeinated. And all you have to do then is to evaporate off the water and you are left with the decaffeinated powder. So that is a very effective way uh, to remove the caffeine and you're not using any kind of solvent except water. Uh, but as I said, I don't have any concern about the other methods either because there's no way that any solvent is going to be left over after the roasting and heating uh, process. Okay, maybe so, the methylene chloride is still permitted in the States, so or I would assume so. If oh, it, it is... It, yeah, it is permitted. It's just that I'm surprised that it's still used because most most producers do not use methylene chloride. Okay. Would it be less but, expensive, but, a less expensive process no. than the others? No. no, it wouldn't be. No. no. Okay. No, it, it's just an, it's an older process. Anyway, I would not worry about it. Okay. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy your coffee. You the package? <laughs> no, I believe you. <laughs> I believe okay. You. <laughs> okay. Enjoy, <laughs> enjoy your coffee. Although Thank I'm not you. sure how you how you enjoy decaffeinated coffee. To me, it kind of defeats the point. Friends who have had a heart attack. So when they come to dinner, their doctors have told them to mix it half and half. So uh-huh. I grind half decaffeinated beans with uh, non-decaffeinated. And to me, it tastes the same. Okay. Well, keep doing it then. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. All right. Uh, Frank. Uh, 
I think, uh, has texted me a correct answer to one of the questions that I had. And that was about the PhD student who placed uh, a chemical on uh, seats that attracted women and uh, repelled men. And indeed, that chemical is androstenone. This is a substance that is actually produced in human underarm sweat. And it has been a candidate for something that we call a pheromone. Pheromones are chemicals that are very specific to species uh, that send messages. And, uh, of course, in, in animals, we're very familiar with these uh, because there are uh, uh, usually the female will secrete some sort of chemical that sends a message to the male that, that she's uh, ready uh, for him. And uh, the question is whether or not there is any such thing in, in humans. And androstenone uh, is very interesting because it does have some sort of effect, as you can uh, glean from the experiment that I, I, I mentioned. However, the amount of androstenone that was sprayed on uh, on those seats uh, is more than what uh, is present in all of these uh, products that they sell you that supposedly uh, have uh, some sort of chemical charm in them to to attract uh, women. But it, uh, it, of course, would not work in reverse because men were repelled by this. Anyway, I think that uh, while the experiment originally was an interesting one, I can't find anyone who has actually properly repeated it. And uh, I think that uh, a lot of the hype about uh, human pheromones uh, is not supported by uh, by science. But anyway, that was the correct answer, it was uh, androstenone. All right, let me replace that uh, question since it was answered by another one. The Meat Inspection Act of 1906 in the U.S. was actually prompted by a novel. What was the title of that novel and who wrote it? So 1906, because before that, essentially, there was no meat inspection at all in the U.S. or, in fact, in Canada. And then this novel came out. Question is, what was that novel that precipitated the passage of the Meat Inspection Act of 1906? And who wrote it? Okay, uh, we have um, others on the line. I think Jerry has a question. Jerry. It's uh, not a question. It was actually about uh, Fallopio, who eventually gave his name uh, to the Fallopian tube. Okay. Yep. An interesting uh, experiment for a Catholic priest uh, um, describing condoms, linen sheets to prevent syphilis. That's exactly what it was all about. And this was in 1564. Yeah. You know, so that's pretty early. And yes, uh, uh, of course, they knew at that time already that that, uh, diseases could be transmitted uh, uh, sexually. And uh, he did this experiment, 1,100 men. That's quite a number to do an experiment. And he claimed that none of them was infected. And uh, he described this in a book. Uh, the title of the book was De Morbo Gallico, which translates to the French disease. Oh. And, uh, you know, that's indeed, that was the term used in those days for uh, for syphilis. And mm. uh, so, yeah, Fallopio, uh, of course, and we know him because of Fallopian Cube, uh, carried out this rather interesting uh, experiment. He was an anatomist uh, they, as well, I think I read. Oh, yeah, of course he was, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, a, when you look at the history of condoms, it's very interesting because there are a lot of laws, you know, that were passed uh, prohibiting their use, 
or in oh. some cases uh, enforcing their use. You know, during war, soldiers were given kits that included uh, condoms. American soldiers were given the, those mm-hmm. kits, not, not without controversy. And in fact, in Germany in 1941, uh, the general public uh, was not allowed to purchase condoms. Uh, there, there are two theories for that. One uh, is, is, is that you know Hitler wanted to increase the birth rate, mm-hmm. and the other is that the, that the condoms were meant to be supplied to soldiers, and there weren't enough of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows if who knows which one of those is true? <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much for the answer hey, to Gabriele Fallopio. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Doctor Joe Show on CJAD eight hundred. Okay, I actually have another correct answer. Uh, and again, it's from Noel. He's hot today. He had the answer to the uh, uh, pyramid question. And uh, he knows the book that prompted the passage of the Food Inspection Act in the U.S. And that book, of course, was The Jungle. And it was written by Upton Sinclair. And... Uh, Interesting story there, uh, because Sinclair did some undercover work in 1904 in meatpacking plants in Chicago. That's what he described in, in, in the book. And some of these descriptions were really quite frightening. And President Theodore Roosevelt thought that uh, it was uh, far-fetched. He didn't believe that rats ended up in sausage. And uh, he sent uh, his labor uh, commissioner, Charles Neal, to inspect couple of these plants. And Neil confirmed that the conditions were indeed revolting. And this led uh, Roosevelt to propose and then pass the Meat Inspection Act. And uh, today, of course, all meat is inspected very, very carefully. But, you know, just over 100 years ago, uh, you could sell almost anything. And they did without any kind of uh, inspection. All right. We had all our questions, I think, answered uh, now. So let me throw one more your way. As you probably know, it is illegal to hunt eagles, but hunters are still a threat to eagles. Why is that? So you're not allowed to hunt eagles, but uh, uh, it's uh, certainly uh, harmful. Hunting is harmful to eagles. And the question is, why is that? Okay. Uh, yeah, all our other questions have been answered. Uh, I had one question texted in about blood pressure and caffeine. Um, it's very variable. Most people do not uh, react in terms of increased blood pressure to caffeine, but some do. In some cases, it can spike uh, blood pressure. But uh, uh, most studies have shown that this is a rare phenomenon. And most people do not have a significant uh, risk uh, of elevation of blood pressure uh, from caffeine. But, you know, unless you try it yourself, you really don't know. Uh, I mean, caffeine is a vasoconstrictor. So it means that it has the ability to uh, increase uh, blood pressure. And uh, really, the only way that you can confirm whether you're not, uh, you know, a candidate for this is to 
put on a blood pressure cuff and uh, try it, drink coffee and see what, uh, what happens. Okay, uh, let me talk a little bit here about uh, another question that was uh, thrown my way. And this was about blue cheese and whether it can cause cancer. Well, interesting question, but where, you know, where does this come from? Uh, anyway, uh, merciful, the answer is no. But this story probably got started because blue cheese is moldy cheese. And originally it got that way because it was stored in caves and there were plenty of mold spores in the air, like in natural limestone caves in Roquefort in France. And since ancient times, it was known that some cheeses have to be aged to develop their proper flavor. Cheesemakers in Roquefort took to storing the cheese in these cool limestone caves. And then one day, a batch of cheese got contaminated with a blue mold. Some adventurous soul tasted it and liked the flavor. And seeing that he survived the adventure, others tried it as well. And soon it became one of France's most popular cheeses. Today, Roquefort cheese is made by spraying a suspension of penicillin Roqueforti over the curds before aging. This mold needs oxygen to live, so the cheese has to be porous. The cheese is usually pierced with stainless steel needles to allow more oxygen to enter. At one time, copper needles were used for this process, undoubtedly giving birth to the misconception that the blue coloring was caused by the addition of copper to the cheese. No, it's caused by the mold. Granted, the idea of eating moldy food does not sound appetizing, but there are molds and then there are molds. Some are dangerous, some are safe. The unfounded worries about eating blue cheese usually arise when people hear stories about the nasty things that toxins produce by molds. These are the mycotoxins, what they can do. And uh, th this is a, ser a serious problem. Uh, there was a story uh, in Alberta about a teenager who needed emergency liver transplant after he drank homemade rhubarb wine that had become contaminated with rubrotoxin B. Uh, there, so, you know, molds are, are, are bad things. So it's understandable that people who have heard these accounts become queasy when offered blue cheese. But worry not. Penicillin Roqueforti does not produce toxins it does, however, produce some flavorful compounds. Of course, there are other moldy cheeses as well. Camembert is coated with Penicillium camemberti, which releases enzymes that produce the characteristic flavor. No problem here either. Not everything that is fuzzy is dangerous. If you must worry about something in moldy cheese, you can think about the, the fat content. All right, I think uh, we have Charles on the line answer to my eagle question charles for the eagle uh yeah. the reason they're being affected is because the uh the hunters go out with the lead buckshot and the lead is poisoning the eagles yes that's exactly right the, the, because the birds often feast on gut gut pilings left over by hunters that's right and and they can ingest uh, fragments of lead ammunition uh, together with the the meat and uh, of course, there today there are all kinds of laws about where you're allowed to use uh, lead bullets and and where you can't use uh, lead shot. And um, when you're hunting waterfowl, for example, like ducks and geese, you're not allowed to use lead shot. Uh, and um, nevertheless, I mean, I think hunters do use lead shot even when they're not supposed to. 
and that can poison eagles because eagles will, will you know, Dr. eat on Dr. the Schwartz? dead carcasses. Yeah. Yeah, did you know that there is a petition in the States uh, by a, a bunch of uh, hunters and uh, naturalists that want to abandon the, the, uh, eliminate the uh, lead buckshot in favor of steel buckshot? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, certainly. The wildlife is suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we've spoken often about lead and the problems associated with it. It's... Uh, it's certainly highly uh, toxic, and um, I mean, you know, you've heard all the stories about lead in ancient Rome, and uh, supposedly some of the Roman uh, leaders went batty because they drank uh, wine from uh, lead vessels. That's uh, maybe a bit far fetched, but certainly lead is is uh, is highly toxic. And yes, there are movements to replace uh, lead shot with um, stainless steel shot. Yeah, are you a hunter? No, my uh, one of my relatives was, but uh, I'm not. Okay, well, I I'm not uh, in favor of hunting waterfowl anyway. As you know, I have kind of an appreciation for ducks. I don't. I don't like to hear of them being hunted with lead or with uh, with anything else. Okay, so thanks very much for that answer. And so we've had a pretty good run here on uh, on answering uh, questions. But I see uh, there was also a frustrated caller, uh, Terry, who sent me a message that uh, he was listening on the line for long time listening to ads and all kinds of things and he wanted to make an important point before he threw in the towel and he wanted to comment that cobalt is also mined in Sudbury and that there's a German mischievous spirit called cobalt. Yes. So Terry, we did get your message and now everyone knows that cobalt also was uh, mined in in Sudbury. In fact, it, it still is. And there is a German mischievous spirit called Cobalt. All right. So I think we have cleared up uh, some confusion here today. We've had a lot of answers to questions, and hopefully you also learned something about nickel and the uh, uh, brilliant chemist Ludwig uh, Mond. And we are out of time once more, but we'll be back with you same time, same station. And until we meet again, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.